Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to X podcast. Today I am with Nick Bradley. Nick is a leading authority on business exits and top top ranked business podcaster in the UK. I really appreciate having you here today, man. I'm really excited to have you on the show and learn from you. So thank you for being here. Not a problem, Ronald. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope I can give some insights, some brilliance, <laughs> some experience to your listeners today. Yeah, I was looking through your profile, man. You've been there and done a lot of this stuff. It said something like over 100 acquisitions, 110 plus or 170, over 100. And then you yep. have like over 26, 27 exits already. Those numbers <laughs> change all the time, but that is impressive. And you look like a pretty young guy for having that type of experience. So I'm excited to have you here. Let's just kind of start off with how did you get in the space and what is your expertise, kind of your origin story? So that people. Yeah, I may look young, but I'm 48, right? So I've been oh, only I've been two this- years younger than me. I've been in this business game for a while. So I'll give you the kind of quick checkered past. Most of my experience in those acquisitions and exits is during my time in private equity. I went from being the CEO of a number of businesses to then being an operating partner. And I can kind of get into all that. I'm sure some of your listeners know what that is. I worked with some of the biggest companies in terms of businesses that were, their whole strategy was around M&A. Right. I had experience in the corporate face, in the private equity, smaller businesses, all that sort of thing. It started many years ago. I started my first company when I was 18. It was a personal training business back in the early 90s. Right. These days, people have personal trainers. It's not as, as rare to have that. But back in the 90s, the only people who had personal trainers were doctors, lawyers, stockbrokers, people like that. It was like a luxury. And of course, my clients were people like that, right? So they were high net worth individuals. And I joke a little bit because my first exit was selling that company to one of my good friends for 3000 Australian dollars, which it's like, I joke, it's probably like a Starbucks coffee <laughs> these days, right? It wasn't a lot of money. And that allowed me to move from where I grew up in Adelaide, South Australia to Sydney. And I started working for News International in the magazine division. And that's where I started to get involved in corporate strategy, M&A. I started off in marketing actually, but I moved into the M&A world and that allowed me to move from Australia to the UK where I worked with a really big publishing group called EMAP. And that was a group that exited, was sold into private equity in 2008. And I was involved in the breakup of that company and also a number of different strategic partnerships and acquisitions while I was there. And after that, I ended up in Getty Images. And if you want to look at a case study of how to grow and scale via M&A, Getty's kind of the poster, the poster child of that, of that uh, strategy, certainly over the, the sort of mid 2000s, because we did 46 acquisitions, I think when I was there, and we ended up selling the company twice while I was there. And I think over 
it's history. It's been bought and sold five or six times and is now worth over $5 billion. But I was involved in that. And then I got working with the private equity firms predominantly and some VC firms going into companies that were either needed to be turned around because the investment was underwater, as the term is called in, in that landscape, or there was a scale-up job to be done. As an operating partner, I would go in there and uh, evaluate the leadership team, evaluate the structure of the business, look at its uh, positioning, get involved in the financials, but I wasn't the spreadsheet guy. I was the operating guy. And that allowed me to get involved in lots of different deals, lots of acquisitions. And as you mentioned, 26 exits, the last big one where I was the CEO of the international division of the company was a business called Ascend Learning in 2017, which we sold to Blackstone for $2.3 billion. That's a considerable exit, right? Well, a lot of my audiences are out there hoping to sell one for seven figures, eight figures, but uh, that's what, 10, 10 figures, right? Ten figure. But you know what? It's interesting. The principles are the same. And these days, just to kind of finish it, these days, I only work with entrepreneurs who are, you know, running seven and eight figure businesses who want to achieve an eight or nine figure exit. And very similar to what we spoke about before pressing record, it's rolling businesses up, creating groups, playing below the private equity lens and radar. But I think the key thing about that is if you know how private equity plays, and you spent over a decade in that environment, you can reverse engineer what you're trying to do to build something attractive to private equity. And the multiples, obviously, when you get up to that level, are going to be a lot higher than what I know a lot of acquisition entrepreneurs are buying companies for today. I was reading through a lot of your bio and stuff. There's a quote inside of there that I really believe in. And it said that you can't scale past your level of identity. And I know that for a fact, having hired salespeople, been a salesperson myself at companies, there's an identity that you resonate with. We used to ask sales guys all the time, what's the most you've ever made in your life? Because we kind of know they'll fight, fight tooth and nail to get back there. And then they're going to need some coaching to get past that because they identify as that's what their self-worth is like. So what's the background on that quote for you? What, how does that, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So there's a few things. Cause when I, when I started my podcast back in, in 20, it was 2019 was the, the official first episode, but it was after I did that exit that I mentioned beforehand. And one of the things I appreciated, I think from those years of going in and doing turnarounds and scale-ups is that you would see a big shift when businesses were going from startup to scale up. And quite often you would work with a very creative founder who was obsessed with the creativity that happens when you're in the startup mode. But when you get into scale up mode, it's a very different transition, different skill set and mindset, right? You have to be able to lead, you have to be able to build teams, you have to be able to trust. And some of these things are difficult for people to be able to understand emotionally as much as they can do it rationally. So the whole quote about scaling past your identity is for you to be successful in the different layers and, and the different steps, if you like, along the entrepreneurial journey, it's about how much you have to change. And if you can't change, quite often, certainly in private equity, we would bring someone in who could do the job and you'd be out. And that was very common as a, a thing that happened consistently in private equity because of exactly that point. I've seen that a lot in the VC, private equity space, venture capitalist startups and that type of stuff where, and it is my belief for the longest time is the same person it takes to create an idea and start it and prove product market fit is a different person than the guy that needs to raise the second round of funding and get it from some customer, some revenue to profitable to even like say five or 10 million. And then above that, a lot of times it's a different guy. And you, if you watch the VC route, there are very few original founders that ride the whole ride. You've got 
Oracle and some of these other companies that the original founder made it. But if you even look what they did, they stepped out of the way for a while and said, hey, we just don't know how to run a company at this level. Step back, let somebody else run it until they got up to speed. So that was a testament to their own ability to get out of their own ego, right? Get out of their own way. Yeah. And the other thing that's important to understand is if you build something from the ground up, you're going to have an attachment to it. I work with a lot of different business owners these days who can't see the issues in their business, right? It's the whole idea. It's hard to scale your own company. Sometimes when you go into something else, you, you can see it almost from a 30,000 foot view and, and see the wood for the trees, so to speak. And that's what happens. I think you, and there, there are classic examples. I talk about the, the Larry and Sergey Google piece where they had to step out the way, bring a, a CEO. And it was Eric Schmidt, I think I remember exactly, but they had to bring a CEO in to take the business to where it is. Well, it's bigger now, but certainly to that next level. So it's quite a common thing. And what I found, and this is probably the, the niche that I have created for myself is I focus purely on, on exit strategy within that scaling via acquisitions and joint ventures. So the private equity playbook, as I call it, but I also focus on personal leadership, right? Who you need to become. And, and the blending those two things together, I found has been quite unique and has helped a lot of founders be more successful than perhaps they were when they first encountered working with me. What elements are there that helps you indicate a company's gone from or at the stage where they're not just a startup anymore, they're actually ready to scale? Because there's a demarcation point where, okay, everything's in place where the company, in my mind, I think there's logically a line that says, okay, we can scale this now. What needs to be in place before a company? What's that switch? You go from startup yeah, to- Yeah, you mentioned one of the key things, which is that product market fit, right? You have mm -hmm. to have, the one thing I get asked a lot is what's the difference between growth and scale? Right. And my answer to that, because I think, I think scale gets very, very misinterpreted by lots of people. When I launched my podcast, which used to be called Scale Up Your Business and now is Scale Up with Nick Bradley, no one was really talking about scale back then as much as they are now. The difference for me is that any, any business can have a period of growth, right? You can kind of, once I get lucky, but you can have something that is working, it's clicking, it's, it, has, it has, has some level of momentum. But if you want to go into scale, what you're really talking about here is predictability and sustainability. So it's not growth that happens randomly for a period of time. It's growth that happens with a high degree of precision. And so what I say is there are businesses that need to first prove they have product market fit. They need to prove that they can sell to a multiple set of customers, right? So not just a few people buying it. There needs to be like a, a broad either volume or depth that they're going into, right? So you have to have that. You have to be able to have a certain number of people in the business because things are getting so busy that you can't just do it with 12 people in a shed anymore. And the big transition for me is when you start to get into that sort of 10 to 20 people in a business, you're starting to have to bring in the management layer, right? So if you think about, we have leadership, we might have the founder, we have leadership, we have management, we have execution, right? People getting the stuff done. As you start to get into that 10 to 20 people, you can't, as the founder, manage all the processes and things going on. You have to bring in management. And that's usually the indication of when you have to start to lead the business through people and process, which for me is certainly one of the best definitions of entering into that scale up part of your journey. I get it. I've managed very large teams and I purposely try not to direct ever. And I haven't had a real job in probably 15 years now, as far as like Man, direct management, I probably, my rule is about eight to 10 is max, right? I want like reporting directly to me. 
It's just because it's hard to track. That is generally, there's a thing called span of control where like you can't effectively run a business when you start to get above that level, certainly above 10. But the other thing also is remember you lose the ability to be strategic when you're managing the, the minutia all the time. And so these are the other things that can bring founders down because they get stuck in this. It's almost like a, a hamster wheel of they can't think big enough to then start to move the business forward because they're managing all the other tasks that are going on. And that's why a lot of businesses never really succeed scale up. It's not an easy process either. So a lot of businesses say they want to scale, but the thing I ask them is, do you really want to scale? Do you actually understand what that means? Because you can create a great lifestyle business, making you seven figures a year, if you want to do that and have an easier life. Scale ups are very different, different beast in contrast to that. A lot of, I don't think many people operate with that level of intentionality, right? Mm, good word. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think heading into something with intentionality, like this, I plan on exiting in five years and here's the four companies. I hate when people put it all in one book. I've got a guy I've been talking to. I'm building this to sell to Google. I was like, what are you going to do when Google doesn't want you? Right. So three, four companies in my side, what did you thought you looked at, you looked up to the side there. We just said that, you, is it okay for somebody to build like with the target of like, I'm selling it to Google or should they well, have Well, okay. So I don't work with, this is going to sort of probably say something more about me. Anyone who rocks up on my zoom call and wants to build a unicorn, I don't work with them. <laughs> I didn't work with this guy. He's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm, I'll tell you why. I call it's, it unicorn it's, hunting. Don't do yeah, unicorn hunting. It, no. there's, there's, a, there's more. Listen, I don't judge anyone's level of ambition, right? So I think if anyone's got that ambition to sell to Google or sell to Facebook or create the next Facebook or be the next Elon Musk, awesome. Big clap, right? But what I often say is like, it's a little bit trying to win the 100 meters before you've even entered your first race, right? The one thing I found that's the big shift and, and having been involved in those 26 exits and seeing so many people realize true financial freedom, right? The ability to not ever have to think about money again. By, by being there, I, I often say, listen, get your first exit out the way. Work on the number that's going to change your life. Maybe the number that's going to start to give you some generational wealth, right? And quite often that number is about 15 to $20 million, right? It's funny. I ask this question on stages all over the place. And, and you know what, if you had that in your bank account now, right? And you invested it well, and you went out and bought other businesses using the skills and the experience, the network that you have, you can probably get that to a billion dollars pretty quickly, right? Because like, I've got 12 equity stakes in companies right now. And I know that some of them are going to be nine figure exits in the next two or three years. And if you just do the simple maths, I only need a few of those ones to absolutely dominate in the industries they're in. And none of them are unicorns. And I'm going to have more money than my family ever needs from that. So without, without saying what they are, cause I, you don't need to do that. What like, are they in software? What industry are they in? I have, for the boring I have, industries? yeah, boring. I like <laughs> boring. I, I like, as I call it, non-sexy industries. I have a marketing agency. Okay. I actually have a couple now because we're going to roll, we're going to merge two together. I'm on the board of a men's grooming retail business out of New York, which is going to sell for nine figures to one of the big grooming businesses, probably a strategic exit on that one we're working to. I advise a fintech out of London at the moment, which again will be another nine figure exit. Got a couple of smaller e-commerce businesses, education companies, uh, that type of thing. And, and we are looking, obviously we've got a, a co-investment group that we're starting to look more at proper bricks and mortar things, but, okay. but I like services businesses. I like retail businesses. I like, I like anything that hasn't got too much tech. If I'm honest, I love technology to be able to drive efficiency, but I'm not one of these guys who's into, we have to spend 20 years driving revenue to actually prove we can be profitable. 
in private equity, and there's been a bit of a change, and I'll share this, that private equity are investing a little bit more now in growth equity positions in businesses like that. But the thing I loved about my time in private equity is we saw value as profit, right? Profit with other things, intangible assets combined. But I like businesses that make money. So most of my, my investments or things that I participate in, there's a pathway to that or they're already making decent money right now. I worked in that space. I was, as an employee, the dot-com, I got out of the military. My friends were making good money in defense contracting, worked in defense contracting. And I seen a bunch of my friends move over to the private dot-com space and were making killing. I got skills. I'll go over there and I caught the dot-com bust, right? I actually got pretty well known for being able to go in and liquidate equipment and stuff. So usually if somebody hired me, I found out within six months, they're about to like, when excite.com hired me, they already kind of seen the writing on the wall and knew they were going to have to like go bankrupt. So I hung around and helped sell, sell all the equipment and shut the place down. And yep. I was like, that was heartbreaking. You're laying off people. And it's just, so I was done with that. And I went back into the startup world. But so I've seen that, right, where people are funding stuff and like, how's this thing ever going to make money other than being sold? So well, you, know, you must have had a, a lot of people on this show who mm -hmm. talk about the value of buying an existing business that has all the infrastructure in place, as well as the financials versus trying to start something. And I often say like, there are people who are better at startup than, than people who are better at buying established businesses, right? They have different energy levels for the different choices, but it's harder work, right? It's harder work. And I don't think now, as we have this conversation here in 2022, that there's better upside, right? Because you're right, like there's more money than we'd ever need for any of us sitting in private equity right now. It's undeployed. They're looking for people to be able to package things together and as long as you understand the fundamentals of what private equity wants, particularly private equity, it's the same in strategic, but there's a few nuances. It doesn't take that much effort to be able to structure deals, structure groups um, through roll-up or other different techniques to be able to be appealing and attractive to all of that capital that's sitting up the chain. Now, I've done the research just because of our roll-up. I kind of think I know what private equity wants, but you've spent 10-plus years in private equity. Can you give us a little insight of what private equity wants or maybe even what they want now? So I'll give you, I think for people here, because I know a lot of people listening to this are kind of acquisition entrepreneurs. They might have done their first deal or they're looking to do a deal. And I'm more than happy to demystify things like the whole no money down stuff and all of that, because I've got a strong view on, on that whole play. In private equity, I give some sort of levers, right? So one of the things that I spoke about recently on a stage in a big mastermind down in Tampa was a concept called OG plus SG equals EG, right? So OG stands for organic growth. SG stands for strategic growth. So imagine adding those two things together and you get a compounding effect, which is exponential growth. So in private equity, we will optimize sales and marketing. We'll make it as efficient as possible and as predictable as possible because it's almost like I call it table stakes. So organic growth is really how well you can drive leads, inquiries into your business and how well you can convert. Okay. And then if you want to go a little bit a step further, how you look at repeat purchase, frequency of purchase and lifetime value. Okay. Really important metrics. If you've got a business that has high levels of predictability around their organic growth engine, that's going to give you a high multiple at exit. But then the strategic growth is the bit that people miss, right? Which is driven predominantly by joint ventures and acquisitions. And most of the businesses that I advise, particularly the ones that are sort of seven and eight figures, the first thing we do once we've optimized their organic growth is we start to get them doing JVs, right? Up and down the value chain. And the reason I do that is because I know that if we get the right joint venture partnerships in place with bigger entities, the next conversation is going to be a potential exit. 
And most of the exits that I advise on are not investment banking, closed auction processes. I don't have anything against them. In fact, I think they can be very, very valuable. But if your number is, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 million, and you've got a big entity up the chain who would love what you do as long as you've positioned it well, you can orchestrate an exit I found within 36 months by being very clear on that. Now, I'll go back a step to your question. What do private equity look for? Firstly, the, the value of a company is not based on its value today. It's based on its future value. So the high multiples that you see, and the biggest multiple deal I've been involved in is 36 times EBITDA. I can explain wow. why that happens. Um, it shouldn't have happened, by the way. It was uh, a tech-enabled service. Okay. Um, overpayment by private equity. <laughs> Thank God. They're really bad. Yeah, I was on the sales side on that one. Thank God. We want something that, first and foremost, it's it's unique and remarkable in a market that is growing, right? That has some level of momentum or scale to it. Okay. We even a, a great business going into a declining market is not going to get a high value. So first and foremost, you've got to have an understanding of how good the market is. And some markets uh, are in different stages of development. So what I mean by that is there are some that are in, are in growth, they're acquiring already, right? Or they're in consolidation, meaning they're not acquiring, they're just getting more profitable. And what you don't want to do is create an entity or a business that's going into a market that's consolidating because there won't be anyone to buy it. So you need to first understand what activity is going on above where you are, because you've got to start to plan. You've got to think about the exit that's going to happen for the person that acquires you. It's almost like thinking about your customer's customer. Then you've got to look at the way you're building the financials. So that, as I said beforehand, you're looking at sustainability of revenue or profit performance. So you want to be able to show that the predictability that you've created and certainly had working for the last two or three years can continue for the next three to five years. Okay. But that's only 30 to 40% of the value. Okay. So most people think the financials are the most important thing. They are the most important thing, but only by 30 to 40%. The thing that screws up all exits. Okay. The thing that gets private equity coming in and buying low to then rebuild and sell high is all based on the intangible assets in the company. Quality of the leadership, quality of the structure and processes, quality of the customer base. In other words, not having over-reliance on too few customers. And if you want to get bonus multiples, subscription or some sort of recurring revenue, and then the quality of the brand and the quality of the culture and all of those things, which is about 60 to 70% of the value. It's what I call transfer value are accessible through due diligence. So if you think that no more, how can someone assess the quality of the leadership? Trust me in private equity, we do. And if you've got poor people or people who are not locked in, they're not part of the journey, or they're just not very good, you're going to get a lower multiple versus one who has actually thought about that stuff well in advance before they put their business on the market. Many of the businesses I've seen, especially in the $5 million revenue and below have the wrong butts in the wrong seats. Some of them even know it and they just, they don't know how to fire somebody and they don't know how to replace them. Uh, well, that they guy, don't want to do it. <laughs> there's always a story behind it. Well, that guy saved me 20 grand five years ago. And it's like, yeah, he cost, he cost you that a month now in, in lost business because he's not doing, he's not performing, right? He, there's some loyalty to some favor that happened a long time ago. There's always a story as to why, but I've seen companies with what I refer to as literal poison pills. Uh, a company is like, there's a negative person there. They drag everybody down. Nobody likes to work with him, but he's their lead engineer. So they keep him. And it's like, how many people out there are trained with that skill set? Seven point something, almost 8 billion people on this planet. I promise you, you can find somebody with that skill set and has a better attitude and wants to work with you. 
The other thing that's interesting, and this I'm part of the the Exit Planning Institute, and we do a lot of research in this space. And the statistic that flies around the place, which I found to be true actually, is this only 20% of businesses doing under 10 million in revenue actually sell, right? We'll sell in, in favorable enough terms that the, the owner of the business is getting what they want from it. And that's an opportunity for acquisition entrepreneurs to go in there and say, well, they're not going to sell up the chain so we can go and do deals which are favorable to, to us as the buyers. But to be frank, it's not a great situation for someone who's spent 30 years trying to build something that they can transfer for their retirement. But the reason is, the reason that, you know, and I, I wrote a paper called Why Your Business Won't Get to Wait Figures and How to Fix It Fast, right? As a 46-page kind of little mini guide book. And I wrote that book because I was going out there and speaking to all of these businesses that are doing five, six, seven million, eight million in turnover, maybe making a million in profit. But when you kick the tires on these businesses, no one's going to buy them. I might turn up and buy the business and do some sort of cheeky deal, but that's not going to serve the person who started the business. No. And so I have a big issue with that. Once they can get a bit of scale to them, then they can start to move up the chain. And that's when they can get the real rewards of a decent exit. 40% of it is the financials, the EBITDA, the balance sheet, cash flow statements, and how well that's put together and how well it's done. And then a large percent of it is in the management and team. And then you talked about scale, scaling. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you the four things. So it's important that there are five dimensions that I advise people look at. So the first one is finances, as you spoke about. So that's about 40%. The other 60% is against four separate intangible assets, people, processes, customers, and what I call social, but it's brand and culture. All of this also is supported by the, the Exit Planning Institute. You have to get all those things dialed in. And then the last thing you've got to do, and this is the thing that can give you the big kicker on the multiple, is you've got to position the business in the sales process to the things that are most favorable to the entity that you've targeted to acquire you. If you get that right, there's almost like three parts of that. Financial, positioning, intangible assets. If you get those things right, you'll get a multiple at the highest end of the range within the market you serve. That's awesome. So you said something earlier on, I want to circle back around to, you said you were strong, you had a strong opinion and to these zero down, no down deals. What is that opinion? And it give yeah, me a little insight there. Yeah. The problem a little bit with, again, remember my, my, my background is always going to be influenced by the private equity way of doing things. And trust me, back to my Bobby Axelrod thing beforehand, we didn't do things always that ethically. <laughs> Certainly some of the things I sat in boardrooms about were not things I'm proud about talking now that I think about where I've come. But the whole no money down thing, I've done 117 acquisitions and I think two of them have been zero money down, right? And the reason that they were zero money down is because there was a pretty traumatic situation happening where the business had to be effectively fire sailed, right? And so I'm not saying today that those deals can't happen. I'm just saying that situation for them to happen at scale for them to be something that you can do day in and day out needs to be quite unique. And the way I contrast that is that if you think about it, if someone spent 20, 30, 40 years of their life building a business for someone to turn up one day and say, I'm not going to pay you any money for it, or I'm going to do it in this sort of deferred seller finance way, blah, 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 and try and give you a two times EBITDA, it's not being welcomed by a lot of business owners. And what I'm seeing is there's all these people going out there learning these techniques to do zero or no money down deals. They're knocking on and, and basically trying to do 100% seller finance deals. And a lot of people are waking up to that now. And you see it. You see, oh, well, I thought I could go and buy all these businesses for no money down. It's so easy to do it. Well, it's not easy to do it. And it's becoming harder to do it. And I just think sometimes the marketing that goes out there making it look like this is the easiest thing in the world is a little bit misleading. 
I, and I think it's the marketing because I've had a lot of those guys on the show and I've actually paid a couple of those guys to mentor because the rest of their content, I was new in this space. And instead of going in and get another, yet another college degree, I was like, who's already doing deals. I paid a few of these guys to mentor me probably to the extent now of about 15 or 20 grand for courses and stuff, just because I, I wanted to learn fast. Right. Yeah. And they have their no money down strategy, but when you dig down to it, it's not no money down. It's not, it's a lot of times it's not your money down. So you're bringing out in outside investors. You're still giving 10, 20, 30% down sometimes from outside sources, or it's really creative strategies where you're looking at a company that's really asset rich and doing what they you know, it's a coin phrase where they're like, it's a deferred down payment. What you're really doing is liquidating old inventory that like the owner doesn't want to sell because it'll do something to his market. Or I, I looked at a concrete manufacturing company that had a $700,000 worth of inventory laying out in a field right there. And a lot of it was like, well, that's, we don't sell those anymore. Us people still buy them. Why don't you sell them? We've switched over to this. First thing I was going to do is buy or sell that stuff off and raise money to do things. So that's a lot of it. They're pitching no money down, zero money down. But when you really get into the course and spend some time with it, they're not doing the deals. These owners are getting smart. They want a down payment. They want some skin in the yeah, game. Exactly it's just right. often not their skin, right? It's often. It's the other term. I don't have much of an issue with the concept of other people's money. And you might hear those two different things and say they sound the same, but they're not. Because even in, in private equity, we will use other people's money in terms of debt structuring. Right. to get deals done. So we're not, and plus you could argue we're using other people's money because we're getting institutional investors to give us a fund. But I think that piece for me, if you understand what it is, how all leverage buyouts really happen, what doesn't happen is this idea that you're going to starve an individual who's had this business by giving them this kind of long runway with no skin. And then I've heard the concept before of, oh yeah, if you can't pay them, they get the business back. Well, they didn't want the business in the first place. And why would they give you the business that you can then stuff up and then get it back and it's worth less. So my view, and this is my personal view, is if you can, if you have the ability to put 10 to 15% down on most deals that are sitting in that under 10 million range where you do have an owner that wants out and all that sort of stuff, you can leverage a fair bit so that 50% of the asking price can be your closing payment and then 50% can be structured in different ways. I've seen many deals happen like that. The issue I find is a lot of people will go and do these courses, do these programs, but they haven't got the ability to put 10 to 15% down. And if they haven't got a mate down the road who's high net worth or whatever else, then unfortunately they spend years trying to do these deals, but they don't get success. And a lot of them wait. I get people constantly, probably once or twice a month or sometimes three last week, but it seems like it's more lately, lately maybe just come getting traction on They'll call me and go, Hey, I've got this deal, but I need 200 K down. I was like, oh, I don't, I, <laughs> I get two or three a day, mate. I get two and, and, and it's one of those, look, I, you seem like a cool guy, but I don't know you and I'm still starting out. So any cash that I've got laying around or can scrounge up is for something I'm going to do. And I don't want to be rude to them, but they're just kind of what I, I'm pretty straightforward. Right. And they're like, who do you know? And I was like, that's the other question. Don't call somebody that's in an acquisition entrepreneur and say, who do you know that can loan me 200K? Because if I've got people here, I call it shelf money. I used to do it in the real estate space all the time. If I know people that are willing to loan me money, those people are willing to loan me money because of my reputation and my ability. And I'm not loaning that to you unless I'm in on the deal and I can control it, right? I'm not loaning you my reputation either. And that's what you're asking somebody when like, who do you know? It's like, hey, will you loan me your reputation so somebody will give me six figures, seven figures? And the answer most often than not, I don't know if that I would do that for many of my own relatives. Well, you know? yeah, the, the answer is no, right? And right. the two issues I see at the moment and partly why I suppose I do what I do and have a number of people reaching out is 
first and foremost, people have to understand that you can buy businesses in a leveraged way and you can do it successfully and you can do it repeatedly, but it's not just about no money down, right? So you have to build your network and that might take you 18 months, two years to go out there and build the network where people do have the resources that you need. And then you have the resources they need. You can formulate some proper groups or partnerships. So that is possible, but it doesn't happen straight off the bat. If you go into this world with no cash thinking you're just going to land a deal, it might happen. I've seen it happen, but it's a real needle in a haystack situation. That's the first thing. The second thing is I'm also finding some people, a lot of people now who are successful in buying a business, but they've never actually run a business. And they get these deals, they go and leverage them. They've got the networks to do that, but then they end up with a business and they don't, they've got no idea what to do with it. And they're putting themselves at massive amount of risk because they've already leveraged the assets in these businesses to get the deals done. So they can, they're great deal makers, but they're really crappy business owners. <laughs> okay. And we get inundated with one of our programs, getting people like that acquisition entrepreneurs coming in who've now got a business and they're like, how the hell do we run this? And I think there's an issue there. <laughs> There's a big issue there because like they're just, they're going to end up bankrupt or they're going to end up in a bad situation because they haven't thought about what happens after you've actually got the thing. It's interesting because I, I have the mindset where I've created more than one company that pushed the high six figures and almost the seven figures in revenue, fairly profitable, but I've never crossed that. I've never like even the real estate investment company, if you look at the number like revenue, because we were buying and selling houses, it looked huge. But if you look at profit, because we're making, we're buying a $150,000 house, we're making 10 grand on it, right? Or 20 grand or yeah. 30 grand. A home run for us was making 40 grand on a house. So if you looked at the numbers on revenue, like what money did we bring in and send out? It's millions of dollars. But it, all I really cared about is what hit our bank account, right? What was ours to keep? And that never crossed that level. So when I'm looking at stuff like this, I'm like, if the first one I look, the first thing I think is, can it afford an outside operator? Because if I buy something like that, I'm not the CEO. I'm not the general manager, right? I'm the owner. I own the majority of the share of it. I need somebody in there that's done there, been there, and it has to be able to afford that. So it cuts down the number of deals that I'm looking for because a lot of those companies, they can't, and I don't need them to pay six figures to me while they're growing or anything. I want to own and control it, but I want to own the I want to be able to hire and fire the CEO. I want them to have skin in the game too. I know that that's not the right spot, right? That I just, I might learn it at some point, but I'm 50. That's not, I don't want to spend 60 hours a week. So these are strategic investments that I'm looking for. And I don't know what your thought process on that is. If you've got the means in the network and stuff, buying a company and putting somebody else in it to operate and just kind of being the chairman well, of the board and giving vision and direction, but not being the day-to-day -day operator that says, go from a to B to get to C so we can eventually get to Z. That's, I don't know. You still need to understand business, right? Yeah. So the best people I think to enter the acquisition entrepreneurship space are people who have come maybe from working for a larger corporate. Let's say they've yeah. been a sales manager, sales director, a VP of marketing or something like that, or operations. And instead of having to work for these big companies, getting paychecks and bonuses, they now want to take their skill set and go and apply it in something that they can own. Even yeah. that's a jump, right? Let's be clear. Going from employee to a business owner is a jump. But what I'm finding is people are doing deals, as I said beforehand, saying what you're saying, actually, I'm just going to go and hire someone who can run the business. But if you don't know how business runs and you're like the chairman of the board or chairperson of the board, that's not going to work either. Because no. you know, why is that person going to respect what you say? Because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah, I spent 
15, 20 years in the industry, stepped out and became an entrepreneur, run those. I just know that I know what I can scale to myself, but like maybe it's a self-limiting beliefs or something, but, and I just don't want to test it on somebody else. Like if I buy a company that's got 30 or 40 employees, I don't want to test my merit because I'd rather bring somebody in and have, that's done it and make me able to afford it. And I know enough about business. I know enough about, enough about profit and loss and all the other stuff that I can really, I, I call it, I did the same thing in the real estate space is I understand really quick on how to develop a BS meter, right? I know yes. when something's working right. I know it's on the right path. I know if you're trying to BS me, I know when things are, hey, wait, something's not right here. And I, if you don't have that, you don't have enough experience in the background to kind of know where things should be going and what it should look like. I 100% uh, agree. You shouldn't be well, the chairman of the board. Let me tell you the, the way that I've advised people in this situation. And the ones that come to me who have bought a business are usually people who have some business knowledge, but they still struggle, right? And yeah. again, if I come back to the, uh, the private equity playbook, how do we do it in private equity, right? Because it works. Whether people like it or not, the track record of millionaires and billionaires from private equity speaks for itself. And we have a broader, people call it a deal team on the acquisition mm. entrepreneurship side, but I call it an advisory board, right? Key roles that you have around you to be successful, right? In private equity. Firstly, you have a fantastic CFO or finance mm. person, right? FPNA. So they understand financial planning and analysis because regardless of whatever business you buy, you need to understand the numbers and you need to understand forward planning and projections, forecasting, mm. scenario planning. Second thing in private equity is the operating partner model. The thing that I did for a number of years works extremely well because you have someone who's actually run businesses, sold businesses, scale businesses, hired, fired, fixed issues, problems. Even if you are going to go out there and buy companies, my advice is create like a mini board. You can be the chairman if you want, but have someone on the board who's kind of been there and done it. They can be your operating partner. Give them a small bit of equity. They don't have to have much. These people like me, I have, as I said, 12 different equity positions. They're small micro stakes in these companies, but I get to then have a big portfolio, which I love, right? Then you've got great M&A lawyer, really great M&A lawyer. You need someone like that that's close to you. And then the other area that people don't do enough on, I think, is proper tax planning, estate planning, financial and wealth management. So you need to have that around you. And if you have that sort of team around you, and then you have people that you hire to run the business, to be in the day-to-day. -day. You've got this really nice, almost like a church and state kind of thing where you've got someone working in the business. You've got on the business stuff is happening kind of at the management board sort of inter interjection. And then you have this team above the business who are looking at the market, the strategy, the network, the growth. But if you're the person who owns it, you have this great group of people around you that are going to make sure that A, you're successful, but B, you're going to get to an outcome. And I find a lot of people just trying into this world too much by themselves. It's funny is when I came out of my MBA program, I thought I was like, I got a master's degree. I'll go create a business. It was the most, the, the MBA wasn't the most valuable lesson. The most valuable lesson was spending every penny I could get my hands on trying to do a startup thinking I knew enough about business to run one. I created an online dating service. The trick with the, it was the unique spin on it was we were trying to keep people honest inside of their profile, right? Like, so we had this thing called honesty first. We were, we've never really got traction. There's a chicken and egg problem. So I spent every dime getting <laughs> this thing like I'm just thinking as you're talking about it. Yeah. And there's those two big problems, right? The chicken and egg problem. Nobody wants to be the first lonely soil, soul in an online dating service. And then like, so you get to getting people to create profiles, right? And then nobody's going to join it because there's no profiles there, right? So nobody will create one because they want to be the first one there. And then no, no, nobody will even click around and look around in there because there's no profiles to look at. So we were starting to get a little bit on that. But 
as I pitched VCs to do the marketing, they're like, you don't really have a business here. You have an idea, a patentable idea, because we had some technology on how we were keeping them there. I said, you got, you should go pitch some of these bigger guys. And in that process, they basically told me, like, look, we were like some of the big guys. I won't say who because they were NDAs back then, but some of the big guys. If you think of the top five dating companies, they told me, like, look, we've already surveyed our customers. They don't want to be kept honest in their profiles. I spent a lot of money and time, a couple of years building this thing out. It just, and there's no product market fit, right? But so the reason I even brought this story up there is a lot of these business owners think that they've got their search funders, right? They got, they went and got a, and a lot of these are Ivy school. They just got their MBA from Harvard and they like, okay, I've got this scholastic skill set that the school told me this is how things run. I'm going to go buy a business and run it. And I just think that I'm curious on what the success ratio is on those. I haven't ever done the research on it, but I bet it's not. Well, I can as tell you, I can say from my perspective, they end up yep. on my doorstep. I get a lot of MBA grads and things like that. Smart, really smart guys and gals, um, but they just haven't got the experience. Again, back to the private equity world. A lot of the people that I was surrounded with were people who came out of business school. Like I, I went to INSEAD over in France, but, yep. but didn't go through the full MBA. I did like the exec thing that they do there because I had a lot of business experience. And so the best balance you can have, in my opinion, is have some very smart people around you who understand the theory, understand the numbers, right? Because that's something that takes a lot of discipline in its own right. And then have some people around you who have got the battle scars of growing, scaling, exiting companies. That's what you need. If you've got one, but not the other, you're going to have some limitations. If you haven't got any of those, which a lot of the people haven't got any of those, that's where I think there's a big issue. There's no wealth transfer going to happen there. <laughs> it's going to be businesses going bust and lots of people in debt thinking, why the hell did I do this? But it's, it, in my personal view, it's a simple thing to solve if you understand it's about who, not how. It's who you surround yourself with, not how you try and do it by yourself. My favorite book by Dan Sullivan, Who, Not How. <laughs> I love it too. It's something that needs to be underlined for people a lot because every problem that you have in your business, in fact, probably every problem you have in your life it's about who can, who's done it before, who can assist you with that or has the network, the resources, not how you try and work it out for yourself. So that's one of the things I look at when I look at these companies, who's going to be the run in the day-to-day -day operations and who else do I need? It sounds like in a lot of cases, a lot of these guys out there, if you don't have the experience I have or you're, I meet people that are just, they're software engineers and they're like, I'm going to go buy an IT company. Like you've run, you've been a programmer for the last 15 years running a PL, have you ever had PL responsibilities like no it's okay make sure that the only thing i can tell i don't want to discourage anybody right because i just i want people to do what they're doing so one thing i can tell you is if you decide to buy the business make sure you can afford a general manager or somebody to run it for you because who's going to run the day who's going to run the business from a business perspective and then make sure you can afford a very expensive coach and mentor to oversee you and help you through this because you're not ready and i'm blunt with a lot of people and they that's okay. They can like me, not like me. I've been called the asshole word more than more often than I can count on. They probably respect you though. Cause remember what you're doing though, is you're, you're being truthful about some of the BS that they've been told. Yeah. Right. And the marketing machine out there in this space, everyone can buy businesses and all that sort of stuff. It's just about how you think about it. It's not that right. It's part of that. That's not wrong. Let's be clear. The stuff is not wrong, but it's not a hundred percent right. Right. So people do have to know this. That's why when I go on podcasts like this, I'm very open about it, mm -hmm. that there is a way out. It's not like you shouldn't be doing it, you know? And I think buying a company versus starting one right now today for the next decade is 100% the thing people should be doing. Even if you want to start a company, go and buy a business, flip it, make some cash, then start a company if you want to with the right resources. 
but uh, but don't think that it's it's all apple pie cherries and ice cream <laughs> right it's a little bit more challenging than that i told one of the things i brought up to the guy that one of the guys we were talking about it's like when you when you build a business it's yours to figure out right and it's yours to solve figure out can you make product market fit can you drive it to revenue can you drive it to profitability when it when you buy one it's yours to mess up right the problems don't go away you can you know you can be unsuccessful in a startup or you can be unsuccessful in an acquisition the difference is at least with an acquisition is that if you just if you let it run the way it's always run it could flounder it could do other things but there's a better chance than not that it's still going to make a little bit of money because of the customers that are there and everything that's going so I'm a big fan of buy versus build these days, mainly because of my age too. I just turned 50 and I'm like, I just don't want to pull 80 hour weeks anymore. There's a lot of ideas. I look at it's like, I'm just going to build this. There's one I've brought up in the last three or four shows. With, it's around the acquisition, the merger space about early indications of people wanting to leave after an acquisition, right? Streamlining or baselining all the LinkedIn profiles and everything else so that you know what's normal for changes and do change detection when you announce an acquisition or merger. That sounds like a great tool that people would I've buy. I've heard something like this. You know what? There was a business that actually did something like that a number of years ago. I'm not sure. They were actually backed by Gary Vaynerchuk. Actually, oh, yeah. Because uh, it was very similar. So it's, a, it's a good idea because you're right. People go and change their profiles when they feel uncertainty or fear. Yeah. So right? if you baseline that, it and know that inside of your company, it would be very, very valuable insight. I don't have the energy or stamina now at 50 and, and or the desire to pull 80 hour weeks, hire engineers and figure that out. There's a lot... As an entrepreneur, you're always going to have ideas, but at this point, I'd rather buy something that's vetted, tried, proven, making money, and now I get to focus on how do we scale it, grow it, are the right people, are the right butts in the right seats, as opposed to like, okay, do the customers even want this? I learned an extremely valuable lesson out of that one, and that was 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, something like that. I was like, maybe even longer, 18, 19 years ago, but just trying to figure that out. It's a, it's a high risk game, right? So it depends what you're into, as I said, from the outset, but a lot of people who, if they're going to start a business, don't think that it's going to be this kind of panacea of like, everything's just going to be really successful and it's all kind of momentum and all that. There was a great drawing where like people kind of expect the journey of entrepreneurship to be linear, but it's this kind of like squiggly line of things going up and down. And my experience of that is true. Cause I, if I think about my own journey, I started a business, as I said, when I was younger. I went into scale up acquisitions and exits for the majority of my career. And then when I sold, I was part of the exit of Ascend Learning, I decided to become an entrepreneur again, to effectively go out there and start some businesses. Cause I started my own consultancy off the back of that, but knowing all the different things I was going to go and acquire and take and within companies as well. So it was kind of a bit of both. But I remember when I was starting out the consultancy, I was thinking, God, why do people do this? You know, why do people do this? It's painful. And I suppose the one thing that I did do, which was very valuable and, and looking back in hindsight helped was I started my podcast and because I talked about everything that I'd learned in private equity and corporate, that was a great way of starting to get at least some foundations of my consultancy off the ground. But these days I would never do that again. I would just go and buy consultancies and businesses that aren't performing and just turn them around. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't find anyone doing what I do now. Right. I, that. I had to kind of go into that startup world again. You built a number one podcast in the UK and it's ranking all over the world in a fairly short period of time. 
And uh, I was kind of shocked that <clears throat> FeedBurner and stuff came out and started ranking me in the top 10 for M&A podcasts. And I'm like, I've got like 80 shows out. Like, how does this? And the volume isn't that high. And it's a very tight niche. I get that. It's opening some doors. This is did it because I already paid for two mentors. I'll be 100% honest with you. I paid for two mentors, right? And I was like, there's still questions. I, ha I have all this equipment because I was about to do a different podcast for a while back. And a friend of mine runs one and he kind of taught me what it does. And like, I was interested. And I'm just start interviewing people in this space and learn from them. And I fell in love with it, man. Now, there's, I don't care what I do, whatever else I do. I'm probably going to have a mic in front of my face for the rest of my life. I enjoy this. I enjoy meeting really intelligent people, learning from their mistakes and their past so that I don't necessarily have to repeat them in the future. It is very much that. And as I said, I'm getting close to 300 episodes now since I launched my podcast, I had an interview with Jay Abraham, who some people on this show may know. He's a very, very smart business strategist. And he came on the show and he was on for about an hour. And it was great, great interview, just kind of picking his brain. But then he gave me an hour afterwards, after we'd finished recording, just asking about what I was doing. And certainly he had an interest, I think, in the private equity site, but he was incredibly generous with his time. And I remember that thinking, how else would I, certainly from my background, how else would I get two hours with one of the greatest minds in business of the last century? How would that happen? And, and it's did. happened more often than not. <laughs> you know, I've had the, one of the coaches from the Black Swan Group, FBI oh, yeah. negotiators on here. Like, if you looked at what they charge per hour, I was, I was shooting five or six episodes a week for a while at the beginning of the year because I just got into it. And we sold our interest off in the roll up. And I just, I didn't have any, we moved to California and I just didn't have much else to do. So I was like, I'm just going to interview a bunch of people. And sometimes I was shooting four or five episodes a week. I did the math in like January and February, the consulting fees I would have had to pay to get their time were in the 50s and $60,000 each of those months because of all the people I'd spoke to and learned from. I'm building connections with people. So I know we're, we're an acquisitions and mergers podcast and we're talking about buying we're podcasting now, but if you're out there building, <laughs> and you were talking about earlier, building that network of taking 18 months to build a network of people in this space that might be willing to fund your idea. Part of what we're doing here, we're building connections, we're building networks. The last three or four people on the, that I've had on the show, we're trying to figure out how to work together just because I like what they're doing. They like what I'm up to and there's some alignment there. Like, is there something else? So we were carrying those oh, conversations. It's absolutely, it's absolutely relevant. I, had a, I was doing a podcast two days ago with an investment banking group out of LA mm -hmm. and that's turned now into, in two days, 48 hours, we're already talking about our strategic partnership because the exit planning stuff I do is normally... 36 months out before we would bring in someone like them. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that they do is they do very, they're very well known for doing valuations, very good valuations at scale. And a lot of my clients, the starting point of working with me is getting a value on their business today so that we can work back from what they're doing, but we understand the Delta. So that's going to turn into, it'll be well into six figures, if not seven figures of business, just from that connection. Right. Because I can then bring all the leads and the referrals from them into my consultancy company and we can do exit planning for them. I've asked you a ton of questions. We're almost at the hour mark. What did I miss? Is there anything we should have talked about? Or is there anything they're thinking, man, we probably should bring this up along the path or do we miss anything? Uh, do you know what? I think we've talked, I'll kind of just summarize a little bit of the journey. <laughs> I think we've talked about why right now is a great time to buy companies. And I'm sure you've covered that with other guests previously. I think the point of distinction for me is understanding that if you want to sell your company to private equity, which I would advise is probably the pathway to go down, particularly if you're looking to do roll-ups, you've got to study them and you've got to study their exit plans. Like I said beforehand, because you can't go into, it's that whole sort of going into a gunfight with a knife, 
right? If you get really good at understanding how the game is played up the chain, even if it's in the sort of eight figure game, the 50 to 100 million exits, or even the 100 to 150 million exits in that range, it's not difficult to get a business that you can get up to sort of 10 to 15 million EBITDA by rolling up. And all of a sudden you're going to be selling into those levels. For me, reverse engineering, understanding the playbook of private equity, understanding the way value is attributed. We talked about financial value versus the intangible assets or the goodwill value, understanding positioning. If you can bring those skills into what you're doing now, you're going to be significantly more successful at exiting. And then the last piece I think, which we touched on, which is important is it's all about who you surround yourself with. It's about building that board even before you're ready. And I would not be bashful if you like, or scared of giving up equity to be able to build the team around you, you've got to do that. And I find a lot of acquisition entrepreneurs think it's about having majority stakes. In my experience, it's about having micro stakes. You can have lots of micro stakes, but have the right people around you. You're going to get the outcome. Whereas if you try and hold everything to yourself, you're not. So I think we've covered most of it. I think that's how I approach this space a little bit different to how others approach it, but I've got a pretty good track record of success because of that as well. That's awesome, Nick. How do people reach out to you, man? What's the best way to reach out? And if they want to work with you, tell us about how to reach out to you and how to, how people can find your podcast too. Yeah, sure. So my podcast is Scale Up with Nick Bradley. You can see, if you're watching this on video, you can see a big scale up behind. Whereas I said, getting close to 300 episodes, you can literally sign up to that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, whatever you, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, definitely go and look back into what I call the back catalog because the very beginning is me telling my story about private equity. And I don't think there's a topic on there because I do a lot of just myself to microphone, like solving mm -hmm. things. Like I did one a, a few weeks ago, which is 10 lessons from a billion dollar exit. And those same 10 lessons are applicable to an eight or nine figure exit. So go back and listen to that. In terms of if people want to work with me or the various companies that I have, the first place to go is to my personal website, which is scaleupwithnickbradley.com. That's got a bit more of my personal story in there as to why I left private equity. And then our main consultancy coaching business is called Scale Up Your Business. And you can get to that by www.highvalueexit.com, where we have a number of different programs of entrepreneurs going from six to seven figures, scaling through eight figures. And our main one is called High Value Exit, actually, where we actually create, if you like, or write an exit strategy for business owners so that they can know exactly what they're trying to build to the right way, the way we do it in private equity. So yeah, that's how to get me. Awesome. I appreciate it having you here today. I've learned a lot and I've kind of opened my eyes. I love the shows where I like look at something and go, maybe I ought to consider this or that. So I change. I've had probably out of the 80, almost 90 shows I've recorded. It's happened. I can count them on my fingers. I don't need my toes yet, but it's not as often as you would think it was. So I appreciate that. I've got some eye openers here for me and I'm sure it does for our audience. So thank you for being on here. Hang out a few minutes after we end the stream and we'll go. That's the show guys. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ronald. Appreciate it. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. 
ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in napoleon's hill's famous book think and grow rich with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.